you have your Bible, please turn to Acts chapter number 2. <clears throat> we'll be looking at verses 1 through 36 of the second chapter of the book of Acts. And if you all would please stand with me, uh, we'll read through these verses. Acts 2, looking at verses 1 through 36. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at the sound of the multitude, uh, this multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthenians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh will also dwell in hope. <clears throat> For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to set to, <clears throat> to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus 
God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Our Father and our God, we ask now that you would bless the reading of your word to us. Help us to understand with clarity uh, this very important text in your word. Give us insight and help us to be amazed once again at the wonder that you came to save us and that you even gave your spirit to live within us. We pray, God, that you would help us over these next few minutes. Fill me with your spirit as I speak and fill each one in this room with your spirit as they listen. Pray that you would communicate to us through your word today. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, we find ourselves in the second chapter of the book of Acts, and we have here in this section truly one of the most significant events in all of the Bible. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church. This major event was prophesied centuries before by the Old Testament prophet Joel. And since that prophecy uh, is going to come up in our text, I thought it would be a good place for us to start this morning just by reading what Joel had written, again, hundreds of years before this event takes place. Joel 2, beginning verse 28, God says to Israel, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So there you have the promise of God that one day, and he says in the last days, he's going to pour out his spirit. God's spirit would come, he would indwell his people. In verse 30 and following, provide various signs of this event. Verse 30 says, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Now notice that in verse 32. At the end there, Joel is talking about a judgment that is coming to Jerusalem. If you go back to verse 1 of Joel 2 and you read through that chapter, you'll find that's what the whole section is about. God is angry at Jerusalem, and he's about to send a judgment against them unlike anything they've ever seen. This is the very same judgment that Jesus talked about in Luke 21. The fact that God was going to judge the city of Jerusalem, that generation of Jews that had killed the Son of God. And Joel provides some hope in the midst of this. He says, in the midst of this judgment, some shall escape. There will be survivors whom the Lord calls. There will be those who are able to escape this day of judgment, and that's anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And all those who do this will be given the Spirit of God to dwell in them. Fast forward a few hundred years, and John the Baptist shows up, uh, People are flocking to hear John preach. He's the first prophet in 400 years. And he seems to have been the one that God used to introduce baptism. Uh, hence why he earned the title John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. Uh, people wondered about John if maybe he was the Messiah that they were waiting for. John, of course, knew that he wasn't. He told people that he was simply preparing the way 
for the Messiah that was coming after him. And in Luke chapter 3, John says something interesting. Luke 3.16, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is a clear reference to the day of Pentecost when these tongues of fire came down and rested on each one of them as the Spirit baptized them. I'm going to talk about spirit baptism and what that refers to in just a minute. Uh, but notice John says that Jesus is going to do this. So you have Joel's prophecy saying God is going to send his spirit. He's going to pour his spirit out on his people. He's going to come and indwell uh, his people. And John the Baptist says Jesus is the one who's going to do this. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, just before he ascended to heaven, he told his disciples when this was going to happen. So we've got uh, the what, the fact that the Spirit's going to be outpoured. We've got the who. John the Baptist says Jesus is going to do this. Now we have the when, Acts chapter 1, verse 4. While staying with them, this is Jesus, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So you have this event and Jesus says it's happening soon. Stay in Jerusalem in just a few days. I'm going to my father and I will ascend the Holy Spirit to you. And here on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes. The Spirit is then sent from Jesus to the early church. And these signs that Joel had talked about took place. And each Christian present there was baptized by the Spirit. And so with that as a background, let's look at verse 1 of Acts chapter 2, which reads, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Pentecost was a Jewish feast day. Uh, happened, it comes 50 days after Passover. So an easy way to remember that, think of a pentagon. It's a shape with five sides, right? Uh, Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. 50 days, in other words, after Jesus died on the cross. Uh, by the way, this is just a, a coincidence. I promise I didn't plan this. Today happens to be Pentecost. Uh, this is Pentecost Sunday, June 5th, 2022. I realized that this morning. I thought, well, that's really uh, appropriate. But the day of Pentecost, this was a celebration for the Jews of the wheat harvest. <clears throat> and Luke tells us that they were all together, probably referring to the 120 who were mentioned in the previous chapter. Although it's possible it could just be referring to the 12 mentioned at the end of the chapter. Uh, either way, there's a group here gathered in one place, I think it's probably the, the 120, uh, and they're, they're, they're probably staying in that same house that they've been in, uh, with that big upper room where they were all assembled when they chose Matthias to be an apostle in the last chapter, uh, quite possibly the same place where they had the Last Supper with Jesus. And so they're still in Jerusalem, staying in this house. And verse 2 says, Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So all of a sudden, there's this sound like a violent tornado, uh, just powerful. Uh, think of how loud it is when you're out in a storm, a really bad storm. And it's rushing down from the sky into the house where they're staying. In addition to this loud, startling noise, there's a strange sight. Verse 3 says, divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, I don't know exactly how to picture that in my mind. Uh, but tongues of fire, perhaps they, they came down with the wind from the sky and with the noise of the violent wind, the fire splits up into little fires and rests on each one of them. This is no doubt the baptism of fire that John predicted 
Uh, this is, in other words, a visible manifestation to them that the Holy Spirit had come. So this is the baptism of the Spirit. Now, let's talk for a minute about the baptism of the Spirit. That simply means the Holy Spirit of God indwelled them. <clears throat> he came to live in them. And all of us who are followers of Jesus, we have been baptized by the Holy Spirit just like they were. Now, you probably didn't hear a noise like a tornado coming down. Uh, you, my guess is there was no fire involved for you or me. But at the moment of our conversion, we received the Holy Spirit. He came rushing into us whether we realized it or not. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. So this is a reality for all Christians. Everyone who has repented and trusted in Christ for salvation, we've been immersed by the Spirit of God. Now again, that doesn't mean we experienced any sort of outward visible manifestation like they did on the day of Pentecost, but we did receive the same Spirit. Pentecost, of course, was a unique event. This was the initial outpouring of the Spirit. So there were signs and things that happened there that don't need to happen again. These were the things that were prophesied by Joel. Jesus reiterated that this would happen in a few days. In other words, this is a one-time event. Uh, when you get saved and baptized, don't expect to come out of the water speaking Swahili. And don't think, man, I, I must not have the Spirit since I never had this supernatural experience. No, this was an unusual manifestation of the Spirit, given as a sign to those present of the arrival of God's Spirit. And the speaking in tongues part happens again uh, on a smaller scale at key points in the book of Acts, like when Cornelius gets saved. Uh, Cornelius is the first Gentile Christian, the first non-Jew uh, who, who enters the kingdom of God, and he begins speaking in tongues as well. And Luke tells us that this happened as a sign to Peter and the other Jewish Christians who were there to convince them that the Gentiles can receive the Holy Spirit and be saved just like them. But again, that's a key event. That's the first Gentile conversion in Christianity. When others are saved throughout the book of Acts, they don't speak in tongues. So this, this was a manifestation for that generation to show them at key points that someone had received the Holy Spirit. This is not at all to be normative uh, for all Christians when we come to Christ. Paul tells us in Galatians 5 that the evidence of the Spirit is things like love and joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's not speaking in tongues, loud noises, or fire. Uh, the fruits of the Spirit are these character qualities, attitudes in the person's life. So don't get all caught up in the miraculous signs you hear in Acts, you see here in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit was initially given. Uh, we should not expect those sort of supernatural phenomena to happen when we're converted. But we do receive the same Spirit baptism that they did. And so being baptized in the Spirit means God is now living in us. The life of God empowering us in our daily service to Him. Making us pure and holy. Leading us to do right. Guiding us as we reach out to lost sinners with the hope of the gospel. Really, all of the Christian life is made possible because of the indwelling of the Spirit. As John Stott said, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be unthinkable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the Spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the Spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from His fruit, and no effective witness without His power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Spirit is dead. And so the indwelling Holy Spirit, the fact that God is living in each one of us is what gives us the ability to live for him. Back to our text, 
After the 120 had been baptized by the Spirit, verse 4 says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now let me explain one thing here. The baptism of the Spirit is not the same thing as the filling of the Spirit. A baptism of the Spirit refers to when the Spirit comes and takes up residence in a person. Uh, here it happened to these 120. In the case of Cornelius, uh, just like for us, when we're converted, the baptism of the Spirit happens right then. But that's a one-time event. Uh, right in that moment, we are indwelled by the Spirit. Again, doesn't mean you feel something funny or you have a dramatic show, but the Spirit of God comes in you. Now, the filling of the Spirit is not a one-time event. This refers to the Holy Spirit taking control of a person. Uh, he's already in you. You've already been baptized by the Spirit, but there are times when we are more filled or less filled with the Holy Spirit, when we're more or less controlled by God's Spirit inside of us. Don't think of uh, filling a water bottle. It's, that's not the point. You don't get more of the Spirit. You already have him. He's in you. Uh, think of it more like wind filling sails, kind of directing it, pushing it. And so they're baptized in the Spirit in the upper room. That's a one-time event. The Spirit then fills them or controls them. This happens throughout the book of Acts. We'll see certain times when Peter, for instance, stands up and it says, the Holy Spirit filled Peter and he began to, to preach a sermon or something. Uh, and so there are times when the Spirit takes control of these people. That doesn't mean the Spirit comes into them. He's already there. Uh, but there are some times when the Spirit very visibly and, and obviously takes control of his people and directs them. And so in just a minute, we're going to see, in fact, the Holy Spirit will fill Peter. He's going to cause him to preach a sermon that really launches the New Testament church. The Spirit that is in him takes control of him, gives him the words to speak. Uh, often I pray before I preach for the filling of God's Spirit, that he would take control of me as I'm about to preach. I'm not asking for God's Spirit to come and dwell me, because that's a one-time thing that happens permanently at conversion. Filling, though, is something that we ought to long for throughout our lives as we yield ourselves to the Spirit's control and ask God to guide us and give us words to say and so forth. So as soon as the Spirit comes on them, uh, they're then controlled or filled by the Spirit. They're given the ability to speak in other languages. Now, this isn't gibberish, uh, as we'll see in a moment. These are known languages. Uh, it would be as if you could suddenly, without any prior knowledge, be able to speak Chinese or German or something. Uh, the, the Spirit gave them this ability instantly, to speak languages that they had never learned. And the rest of the text tells us why. Verse 5, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. Now, one quick note. Notice the word dwelling. Uh, this is something I learned this week in studying the text. I always had in my mind that the day of Pentecost, uh, there were a bunch of people visiting Jerusalem from other places. But that's not what the text says. Uh, this word dwelling means they lived here. They were residents of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was a melting pot city. You had people that had moved there from all different places. And so it doesn't mean that they're just visitors. They were actually living here. Another reason I'm convinced that this is correct is at the end of the chapter, it says 3,000, of course, are saved. They're baptized. They're added to the church in Jerusalem. Well, if they were just visiting there for Pentecost, they would all scatter and go home. Uh, these are residents of the city, people who lived here. And they didn't get baptized. And then, uh, like I said, they didn't get baptized and then leave to go home. They, they, they lived in the city of Jerusalem. In other words, these were immigrants from all over different countries who were now living in Jerusalem. Now, this is a, another reason this is important is all of them would have spoken Aramaic. That's a variant of Hebrew that the Jewish people spoke at, at the time. Uh, so all of them spoke one language. 
but they also spoke a, num a number of other dialects. This would be very different than the world we're used to here in America. Uh, most of us only speak English. Maybe some of you are bilingual. Uh, I don't know about that, but maybe. Uh, but these Jews were at least bilingual, many of them. They spoke Aramaic, the common language that allowed them to communicate with one another. Uh, in verses 7 and 8, by the way, you see that. They're talking to each other so that they can communicate in this common language. But they also spoke their own uh, native language, depending on where they had immigrated from. Now, this matters because some people have this idea that tongues was a tool given to communicate the gospel to people that otherwise couldn't hear it. That's simply not true. Uh, the gift here of tongues was not a tool for communication. It was a sign to the Jews. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. So the gift of tongues was given as a sign. And in particular, just like Joel said, this is a sign of judgment. This is a way that God was going to, to make clear to the, the, the people in Jerusalem that judgment was coming to them. He's going to speak to them uh, through strange tongues, and through lips of foreigners. I'm going to speak to these people and they will not listen. And so uh, this is the generation of Jews in Jerusalem that had killed the Messiah. And this outpouring of the Holy Spirit signaled the coming judgment against them. Uh, but now I'm getting way ahead of myself. Uh, understand, so, though, that these Jews, again, they all spoke Aramaic. They all heard. They all understood each other. They all understood Peter's sermon. Uh, he stands up in a few verses. He begins to speak. He doesn't have to give the sermon 17 times in different languages. He says it once, and they all understood. So the point of the tongues was not to communicate. The point was it was a sign that God's Spirit had been poured out on them, and it was attesting to their claims about Jesus. And it was a verifiable sign. Notice verse 6 says, At this sound, the multitude came together and were bewildered. Now, the sound is, back uh, earlier, the sound of the mighty rushing wind. Uh, apparently, you know, it comes all the way down from heaven. I don't think this happened in three seconds. Uh, it was probably a, a while that this was going on, this roaring sound from heaven that comes down to this house. Well, that would get the attention of people who lived around. Uh, you would poke your head out the door and go, what in the world is going on over there? And so people started to crowd around the house, wondering what was happening. Uh, perhaps they saw the tongues of fire coming into the house. I don't know, but uh, they heard this noise. Their curiosity is peaked. And so they head down the street to this house. When they get there, they see these 120 people speaking, and each person is hearing someone speak their native language. Verse 7, they were all amazed and astonished. I'm sorry, end of verse 6 there, it says they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? These are Galileans. They're, they're from the, the hill country of the northern part of Israel, uneducated fishermen. How are they able to speak all of these different languages? And then Luke lists out some of the places that these Jews had uh, moved from to illustrate the various languages that they were, they were hearing these Christians speak. Uh, beginning verse 9 says, Parthians, Medes, uh, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, not referring to the continent there, but the Roman province of Asia, uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews, proselytes, Christians, Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Okay, so you've got 
thousands of people crowded around this house that this uh, crazy sign has just taken place, is loud noise, tongues of fire, and they're hearing these Christians speaking in their native languages. Uh, for many of them, I assume, they hadn't heard these languages spoken in years. They've been living in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, they hear somebody speaking the language that they grew up hearing uh, when, they, when they moved from their other country. And they're thinking, how does he know that language? These are uned uneducated men. And they begin talking to one another, saying, wait, is he speaking your language? He's speaking your language too? And so they're, they're, they're just dumbfounded at what they're seeing. This is incidentally one of my uh, issues with the modern Pentecostal and charismatic movement. Notice the, the gift of tongues here could be verified. These Jews in Jerusalem knew that the Christians were somehow speaking supernaturally in other languages because the native speakers of those languages could verify. They could understand it. Okay, if I stand up and say, and then I say, I just spoke in a heavenly tongue, uh, none of you have any way of knowing if that's true. But if somebody is speaking in a, a real language and people there that know that language can say, oh, I, he, he's speaking Swahili or he's speaking French, uh, that can be a verified sign. And I'll just mention as a thought here, perhaps one reason that God chose to give them the gift of tongues was to demonstrate this was a new era. The age of the Spirit would extend to people from every language group of the world. No longer would the true worship of God be centered internally in Jerusalem and in Israel, but now it would be expanding externally to all nations of the world, all people groups. I think these various tongues being spoken when the Spirit is given perhaps hints at that shift in focus, that the kingdom of Christ would include those from every nation, tribe, and language, all praising God, all confessing Jesus as Lord. So verse 12 says, they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. So these people, they don't know what to make of this. Uh, some of them are amazed because they realize something supernatural is happening because they're hearing them speak their language. Others perhaps didn't speak any of these languages. Maybe they only spoke Aramaic. And so to them, it just sounds like gibberish. And so they say, well, these guys, these guys are just drunk. In verse 14, Peter stands up to address the crowd. Uh, the speaking in tongues seems to be done now. Uh, everyone is all ears at this point, a very captive audience for the gospel. And Peter alone stands up. He lifts up his voice to be heard by everyone present. And he says in verse 14, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ears to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, <clears throat> since it is only the third hour of the day, meaning around nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was uttered by the prophet Joel. And then he quotes Joel 2, what we just read earlier. In the last days it shall be, declares the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapors of smoke. <clears throat> the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter tells them that what they are witnessing is the prophesied outpouring of God's spirit that Joel had written about. They're seeing this prophecy fulfilled with their very eyes. Now, Joel said that this would happen in the last days. You notice that in verse uh, 17, the last days, God's going to pour out his spirit. Uh, the last days of what? 
Uh, that should be a question that we have. Some people automatically assume <clears throat> this means the end of the world, uh, the last days of the space-time continuum, or the last days of human history or something. Uh, I've argued before, and I will hear again, that it makes far more sense to view the last days in the New Testament normally as referring to the last days not of human history, but the last days of the Judaic age. God had chosen the Jews to be his covenant people. He had established that relationship with Jacob and all of his descendants. He had given the Jews the Old Testament law, brought them out of the land of Egypt uh, into Israel, the promised land. They had built this temple in Jerusalem, the focal point of their worship of God. And all of that was ending. The Messiah had come. All the promises of God to Israel were fulfilled in Christ. He, he had died as the ultimate and final sacrifice for sins. And so all of the, the Old Testament shadows and types that were pointing to Jesus are now done. And now that he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, he's begun to reign. The age of the kingdom has begun. It's beginning to be built, and it will continue until all nations of the world are his. <clears throat> but this time period in Acts is not only the beginning of the age of the kingdom, it's also the end of the Judaic age. In AD 70, Jerusalem will be attacked by the Roman army. The temple will be completely demolished. That's the climactic end of the Jewish age. And Acts 2 takes place somewhere around AD 30, so about 40 years before the end of, of the temple and the Judaic age. The priesthood will be done. The sacrifices will be ended. They've never happened again since, in the 2,000 years since the temple's destruction. But right now, here in Acts 2, that's all still going on. So it's sort of like a relay race. Uh, when one runner is finishing his lap and the other one's starting his lap, there's a few steps there where they're both running and they're both holding the baton. Uh, that's sort of what's happening here. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ has begun. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's ruling and reigning. But the Judaic age is coming to an end. It will, again, come to a climactic end in AD 70. The 40 years or so in between, these are the last days. Uh, the Jews living in Jerusalem during these final days of the Judaic age, they're living in the last days. This was the last generation of Jews to this very day to offer sacrifices to God in, in Jerusalem, to have priests ministering in the temple, to keep the feasts and holy days. All of that was about to come to a close in the plan of God. And now you have the new covenant being established. And it's not just with the Jews. It's for all who call upon the name of the Lord. You notice that in the end of verse 21. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation of the world can be a, a part of this new covenant relationship with God. That's what Joel prophesied. So the Judaic age is coming to a close. Uh, these are the last days of that whole Old Testament system. In about 40 years, it's all coming to an end. And this period of time in between the ascension of Jesus, the establishment of the kingdom, and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, that period, I believe, is referred to throughout the New Testament as the last days. If you read these verses with that in mind, I think it'll make a lot more sense than assuming the last days uh, means the end of the world stuff in our future. Uh, because Peter says it's being fulfilled today, <laughs> right now. So he's not talking about some future event. Uh, the last act chronologically in Joel's prophecy is the outpouring of the Spirit, which had just happened. Peter doesn't say Joel's prophecy is partially fulfilled and more of it will happen thousands of years in the future. That's how many Christians view this prophecy as though we're still awaiting another event like this. But that's not Peter's view. He says, this is it. You've seen the fulfillment. It's not like God's spirit was poured out here and it's going to be bottled back up and poured out again later. 
Uh, this is a one-time event. And Joel's prophecy is fulfilled here on the day of Pentecost. So Peter reminds them of what Joel had said. That in these last days, the Spirit would be poured out, people would prophesy, and there would be signs from heaven. Uh, like when Jesus died about a month prior to this, and the sun went dark. Uh, like a sound of a violent wind rushing down from heaven, so loud that it gets the attention of thousands of people living around. I would consider that a sign from heaven. Uh, how about tongues of fire coming down from the sky into this house and splitting and resting on each one of them? These are all visible manifestations that the prophet Joel had said would take place when the outpouring of God's Spirit came. Remember that these same people, again, they had seen the sun go dark for hours just a few weeks prior to this. There was that great earthquake, darkness, right in the middle of the day across the whole land. All of this is what Joel said would happen in the last days, just before the outpouring of God's Spirit on his people. Now, immediately after the Spirit is given, and, and Peter explains that this is what has just taken place, he stands up to preach, and the rest of our text this morning records that sermon. And so that makes my job really easy. Uh, Peter wrote the sermon for me. Uh, I'm just going to plagiarize it and preach his sermon. Uh, not quite that easy, but uh, just before we walk through this, let me mention to you, Peter does in this sermon exactly what every good preacher does. He teaches the Bible. This is an expository sermon. Uh, the word expository simply means he, to explain the scriptures. Uh, an expository sermon is preaching that teaches and explains passages of the Bible. Now, of course, Peter is an apostle. He's one of those that Jesus chose and gave special authority uh, to speak on his behalf. So Peter could have just stood up and said, uh, I'm an apostle of Jesus. Listen up, everybody. Uh, I have a message from God for you. But that's not what he says. He could have told them whatever God told him to say in that moment. But here, Peter instead walks them through a Bible study. He quotes a few passages from uh, the scriptures, the Old Testament, they would have been very familiar with. Again, these are devout Jews living in Jerusalem. And Peter doesn't just reference these passages and kind of move on quickly. He doesn't just quote a verse at the beginning of a sermon and then give five practical points for daily living and kind of give a bunch of his opinions that have nothing to do with the text. No, Peter says, here's what this text means. Let, let me, let's dig into this. Let me explain to you what this passage in your Bible means. That's what all good preachers do. The best preachers are not the ones with the funniest jokes or the most memorable stories, the ones who yell really loud or pound the pulpit all animated. No, the best preachers are the ones who help you understand the Bible. That's the job of every preacher, to take the scriptures, to read it, to explain it, and to apply it. I say all this because my guess is, for many of you, uh, I'm not going to be your only pastor. You may move and need to find a new church. Uh, I may walk out the door this morning, get hit by a bus, and then you need to find a new pastor. Uh, and so I think part of my responsibility as your pastor is to tell you how to replace me in the event that I'm no longer here. Or when you're looking for a new church, what, what should you be looking for? I think the most important aspect of that decision, choosing a church or choosing a pastor, is go with the guy who teaches the Bible accurately, carefully, rightly dividing Scripture, not just giving you opinions, not just giving you great stories, but opening up the Bible week after week, showing you what God has said and what it means. And that's exactly what Peter does here in Acts chapter 2. Now, before we uh, go through and explain Peter's explanation of these Old Testament passages, uh, before I exposit his exposition, uh, before I preach his sermon, let's, let's look at the text that he quotes from. It'd be good for us to familiarize ourselves uh, with these, sort of like here at church, we always read the whole text before I go through and teach it line by line. 
It helps to get the whole thing in our minds first. So uh, let's read two Old Testament passages. These are very brief uh, that Peter is going to explain to them. The first one is Psalm 16, beginning verse 8, where King David writes, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you, so now he's speaking to the Lord, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Uh, the word Sheol is a Hebrew word. The Greek equivalent is Hades, what we see in our text. Uh, it means the grave or the place of the dead. It's the, the place where the spirits would go. It takes me forever to explain all that. It's very complicated. Come Wednesday if you have questions, we can talk about it then. Uh, but the point here is God's not going to leave him dead. He's not going to abandon his soul to Sheol, nor will he let his Holy One see corruption. His body's not going to decay. In other words, he's going to rise again. Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Then one more verse, Psalm 110. Again, this is David writing. He says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus has quoted this in the Gospels and said that it was talking about him. This is God the Father speaking to God the Son. And he says, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So those are the texts. The first one says, you're not going to abandon my soul to Sheol or Hades. You won't let my body decay. The second one says, sit here at my right hand while I subdue your enemies. And as Peter will explain, neither of these is talking about King David. Now here comes the sermon. Beginning verse 22 of our text, Peter has a, a captive audience. They've heard and seen some pretty incredible things. And Peter explained to them, this is the outpouring of God's spirit that Joel had promised. And now in verse 22, he delivers the sermon that launches the New Testament church. Here's the outline of the sermon. First, you have the life of Jesus, then the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, and the reign of Jesus. That's the outline of Peter's sermon. First, we have the life of Jesus, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. He reminds these Jews of the miracles that Jesus had performed throughout his life. In their presence, he had done these signs and wonders, just like there were signs that God was approving uh, their message right now, these uh, gifts of tongues and things. God also gave signs through Jesus that his message was true. They all saw Jesus cast out demons. They saw him heal the sick, make blind people see. Peter reminds them of all the incredible things that Jesus did throughout his life and ministry. This was clearly a true prophet attested by God. Verse 23, then we have the death of Jesus. This Jesus, he says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter reminds them that <clears throat> Jesus was killed unjustly. Many of them presumably saw this. Again, these were the Jews living in Jerusalem, no doubt. Uh, some of them were the very ones who cried out, crucify him, just uh, a month or so prior to this. But Peter says, although Jesus was put to death at the hands of lawless men, it was all God's plan. He was delivered up to die according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God knew Jesus was going to be killed, and it was God's plan for Jesus to be killed. This was a fixed plan in the mind of God. The death of Jesus was, in fact, 
the very means by which God would redeem the world from sin. So this wasn't an accident, this wasn't a tragedy, this wasn't, uh, oh no, what just happened? No, this was God's plan from the beginning to save the world from sin. Next, notice the resurrection of Jesus, verse 24. God raised him up. So they had seen him die, and Peter says, he's been resurrected. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. We're going to come back to that, because that's a great phrase. But as proof of this claim that Jesus rose again, Peter points them back to the Old Testament. Again, keep in mind as we go throughout this text, these are devout Jews. They would have been very familiar with the Hebrew Bible. And so Peter uses first the prophecy of Joel to say, this is what's happening right now before your eyes. And then here he points to prophecies from King David in the book of Psalms in order to convince these Jews that Jesus' resurrection was foretold by God. So Peter says in verse 25, quoting Psalm 16, what we just read, he says, David says concerning him, so concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart will be glad. My tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Now, Peter understands this text to be speaking of Jesus, his confidence and trust in the Father, that he goes to the cross in obedience to the Father because he knows, verse 27, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. In other words, you're not going to leave me dead. You're not going to leave me in the, gra in the grave to decay. You make known to me the paths of life. Uh, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Notice that you will make me full of gladness with your presence, meaning that Jesus is going to come back to life and be back in the presence of his Father. And so this is the argument that Paul is making from this Old Testament text. <clears throat> Peter views this as a prophecy of Christ's ascension, uh, resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. The rest of uh, verse 11 there in Psalm 16 says, At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So he's back in the presence of his Father again. And we'll see Peter makes this application to Jesus in the next verses. As I said, he doesn't just quote the verses, he explains them. Verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, the one who wrote this, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So he points them to the scriptures they knew and loved, and he says, guys, think about this. This can't be talking about David. David, who wrote Psalm 16, he did die. And we know where he's buried. His grave is still here. He stayed dead. His body did decay. He didn't rise again. So if David in Psalm 16 is not talking about himself, then this has to be a prophecy about somebody else. And he explains in verse 30, being therefore a prophet, because he's not talking about himself, because he's still dead, therefore he's speaking prophetically, and he knows that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He's speaking prophetically of somebody who's going to come in the future. And these Jews knew the promise of God to King David, that a descendant of his would rule on the throne forever. Peter says, that's who David is referring to here. Verse 31, he foresaw, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So he uses this Old Testament text as a proof of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Now we need to go back to verse 24. We're going to pause on the text for just a minute. We'll come back to it. But I want to point out something really arrested my attention this, uh, this week. Peter says of Jesus in verse 24, his, after his death on the cross, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible 
for him to be held by it. Death could not hold Jesus down. It wasn't possible. Now, here's the question. Why? What made that not a possibility? Think about it. How would you answer that question? On the basis of what Peter just says there, how can he say Jesus could not have stayed dead? It wasn't possible for him to be held down by death forever. He had to rise again. Why? Most people would say, well, because Jesus was God. That's not what Peter says. Most people would say because Jesus was just too powerful. Death couldn't hold him down. That's not Peter's argument. Peter says Jesus couldn't stay dead because the Bible said he wouldn't. Notice the word for at the beginning of verse 25. This is a grounds. This is the reason that it was not possible for death to hold Jesus down. He says it was impossible for Jesus to stay dead because the Bible says in Psalm 16 that he's coming back to life. In other words, God promised it. He goes on to quote in that, that passage, this Old Testament promise of God that the Messiah would resurrect from the dead. And that means it's impossible for it not to happen. Talk about a high view of Scripture. Uh, you say, who cares? What's the difference there? Why is that significant? Well, here's why. Because I can just as confidently say to you today, if you're a follower of Jesus, it is impossible for death to hold you down forever. God will not abandon your soul forever when you die. It's not possible. Why? Because the Bible says so. 1 Corinthians 15, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits is a farming term. Uh, when they would harvest their crops, the first bit of it called the first fruits, that would be a test of what was going to come. And so they would examine that first bit of crop. If it was diseased or something, then they knew that they were going to have a bad crop that year. Uh, but if it was a good crop, if the first fruits was full and healthy, then they knew that was a guarantee. We're going to have a good harvest this year. And Paul takes that illustration and says, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. He's the guarantee that you and I will be raised from the dead. Verse 21, he continues, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, he's the first resurrection, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So just as much confidence as Peter had that Jesus had to rise again, we have the same promise from the same God that we will rise as well. The same power that raised Jesus will give life to our mortal bodies. If you are in Christ, death cannot hold you. It's not possible. And it has nothing to do with who you are or some power that you have over death. It's impossible because of the promise of God. And God cannot lie. So Peter makes this point that in Psalm 16, it's predicting the fact that the Messiah, the Christ, he would not be left dead forever. He would rise back to life. And then in verse 20, uh, 32, Peter says, This Jesus God raised up. God kept his promise. Jesus was raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. We saw him. He's alive. Now, therefore, he is the Messiah that David spoke of. And this is why you're seeing the outpouring of the Spirit now. God is attesting to his Son and the truth of this gospel message. So Peter covered the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. Next notice, the ascension of Jesus in verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. 
I'm not going to take time to go to those texts, but over and over throughout the Gospels, Jesus predicted this. He said, I'm going to ascend to my Father, and when I do, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And so Peter has established that David is writing in the book of Psalms about the Messiah. And he says, let me tell you something. This Jesus, whom you all know was a prophet, he performed miracles among you. He died and he rose again from the dead. We're all witnesses of this fact. We saw him alive. And you don't just have to take our word for it. Jesus ascended to heaven and sent the Spirit. That's the explanation for what you're seeing right now. The rushing wind from heaven, the tongues of fire, the speaking in other languages, all this is testifying to the fact that Jesus rose again, ascended to heaven, and sent the Holy Spirit. The kingdom reign of Messiah has begun. And again, Peter quotes from the book of Psalms to back up this conclusion. Verse 34, he doesn't just say, Jesus rose again and we saw him alive. He points to the Bible and shows them that this was prophesied. David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is Psalm 110.1. Again, we read it a moment ago. And Peter says, again, David can't be talking about himself. David didn't ascend into the heavens. So he has to be talking about someone else. David's tomb, again, is here in Jerusalem. His body decayed. Uh, by the way, his tomb is still in Jerusalem. You can go there and see it today. You can walk right up to it. People like to go there and pray and things. Uh, his bones are still here on earth. Jesus, on the other hand, did ascend. His tomb is empty. And now he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he will remain there until God makes all of his enemies his footstool. And here comes the conclusion of all of this. The life of Jesus the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, all of this builds up to the reign of Jesus in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You can know this for certain because we saw it with our own eyes. We're eyewitnesses. You can know this for certain because it's prophesied throughout the Old Testament that the Messiah would die and rise back to life and ascend to heaven and reign there until God makes all of his enemies his footstool. And you can be assured of this. You can be certain of this because you've seen the outpouring of the Holy Spirit with your own eyes. You can be certain that God has made Christ, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. Lord and Christ. Let's talk about those titles first. He's Christ. He's the Messiah. The promised one who would bring salvation and establish his kingdom. These Jews had given up hope in Jesus when he hung there dying on the cross. You remember they yelled out for him, if you're really the Messiah, come down from the cross. But Peter says, you guys got it all wrong. He was the Messiah and his death actually proves it. It was part of the predetermined plan of God that the Messiah would come and die and rise back to life. Jesus was your Messiah, but he's more than that. He's Lord. Here's a passage I've shared with you recently, but it's just so important in this concept of the reign of Jesus, his authority to rule over all of us, and thus our responsibility to submit to Christ as Lord. Matthew 28, these are the marching orders for the church. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, God has made him Lord. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. And this is what Peter is doing. He's saying all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. You can know for certain that God has made him Lord. And as we'll see next week, Peter concludes this sermon by urging them to become a disciple of Jesus. Get baptized, live in obedience to your king. We'll see that all next week. 
And so Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus is ruling and reigning over his people right now at the right hand of God the Father. And he will rule over all nations. His dominion will continue forever. And Peter says, you can know this for certain. Because we saw it with our own eyes. We're witnesses. We saw him rise again. We saw him ascend up into the sky. You can know this for certain because the Old Testament predicted all of it. That the Christ would die. That God would raise him back to life. That he would ascend to heaven and rule from the right hand of the Father. And the final reason that you can know for certain that all of this is true is because of the outpouring of the Spirit that you're a witness to. You've seen it right now before your eyes. The ability to speak these languages God has given us, and you know they're real languages, you, you know these native tongues, this is validation that we're telling you the truth. God himself is attesting to our message with these signs that he has poured out his Spirit on us. That's a pretty convincing message by the Apostle Peter. It's also such a Bible-centered message. Peter, in the last chapter, we saw, Acts chapter 1, he replaced Judas based upon uh, Scripture. And now here he stands up to preach, and everything he says, he's backing up with Scripture. This is so instructive for us. Uh, Christians are to view all of life through the lens of what the Bible says. Now, you're going to have to come back next time to find out the reaction of the people who heard this sermon by Peter. Uh, but suffice it to say, the effect was powerful. 3,000 people were saved, baptized, and added to the church in Jerusalem after hearing this sermon. And that's what God still does today when people hear the word of God taught. The Holy Spirit can still draw people to Jesus when his word is rightly preached. The message of Peter is exactly the message that we are to preach today. The life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, and the reign of Christ. That's the gospel. Such a great sermon to launch the church age. This powerful, biblical, clear presentation of Jesus as both Messiah and Lord. I want to close by just giving you like a 60-second summary of the gospel. This is Peter's sermon, and it's our message to the lost world. It's a simple message. It's clear. And if you can get this all straight in your mind, you're ready to spread the gospel to others. Here it is. You tell people first about the life of Jesus, how God became a man and lived among us, a perfect, sinless life, how we went about healing people, feeding the hungry, doing good, performing miracles, all attesting to the fact that he was a true prophet sent from God. Then you tell them how Jesus was killed on a cross, but that wasn't just an accident or a tragedy. It was the plan of God to save us from our sins. He died in our place so that we could be forgiven. And then you tell them how Jesus rose again, how he ascended to heaven where he is right now ruling and reigning over his people. And he invites you to become a citizen in his kingdom. If you'll repent and turn in faith to Jesus, if you'll submit your life to his lordship, he will forgive your sins. And he promises to send you the Holy Spirit who will transform you from the inside out. He'll cause you to live in a way that pleases God. And he promises that when you die, you won't stay dead, but you'll be raised to live with him forever. That's the gospel. That's the message that sparked the church here in Acts chapter 2. And it's the torch that we carry into the darkness of our world still today, shining the glorious gospel of Jesus.